We're going to be talking about some of the literary techniques that the narrator uses in Ruth. But as I read this first chapter, uh, would you look for repetition? You will find the word return in the first chapter is used 12 times. You will find the word go or went is used nine times. And you will find the word to, T-W-O, that is to or both, same word, but that's used eight times. And so one of the techniques that the author uses is repetition. Ruth chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But he died, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives And the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And they died, both Machlon and Kilion, so that the woman was left without her two boys and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, the dead, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. One of our favorite activities when our children were young was to read aloud. And we decided one Christmas that they we were going to read aloud A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And so we gathered around, and I took the book up, and I began to read. And I read the first line. And the first line is this. Marley was dead (laughs) to begin with. Well, after I read that first line, my younger daughter burst out with questions. She said, who's Marley? What happened to him? How did he die? In other words, Dickens had her. He started out so abruptly announcing the death of Marley with no explanation. That's similar to how the narrator treats us in this book of Ruth. In only Five verses, he announces the quick death of three men with hardly any explanation. But before we get to those men, let's see how he sets the scene. Because the first lines are, in the days when the judges ruled. Now that may not say much to us, but to an Israelite, that said a great deal. Because they looked back to the, the history that is recorded in the book before Ruth called Judges. When the judges ruled. And they were more like military strong men and women rather than what we think of judicial uh, magistrates. But it was a chaotic time. And so when they heard in the days when the judges ruled, they would cringe as they remembered the idolatry and the oppression and the political and the religious and the, the, the social chaos that took place in the days when the judges ruled. They would also that the book, remember that the book of Judges ends with a refrain. As things fall into total chaos, there is a refrain. And the refrain is this. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he saw fit. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he saw fit. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he saw fit. What's the purpose of the book of Judges? To say what? We need a king. And there's also a preference for a king from the line of Judah not from the line of Benjamin. Now, this is the first technique that the narrator uses. It's a technique that we find in biblical storytelling, and it's called inclusio. Inclusio, we could think of that as bracketing or bookending. The idea is you introduce an idea at the beginning, and then you come back to that idea at the end, and everything in between is included in this inclusio, in these two bookends, in the days when the judges ruled, and in the minds of the the Israelites, they're saying, yes, the judges, in that day, we needed a king from the line of Judah. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, that the book starts with a, a gesture toward the need of a king from the line of Judah. 
And then remember that when we get to the very last words in chapter 4. When the bookend, the second bookend, is put in place. Now what we find is that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Bethlehem. Bet. Lechem, house of bread. What's missing in the house of bread? Bread. So there's an an immediate irony here. In the house of bread, there is no bread. And so a man goes to sojourn. The word sojourn means to spend some time. He was planning on coming back after the famine was lifted. And he went to Moab. Moabites were distant relatives of the Israelites, but they did not get along well. And they took turns oppressing each other. And because the Moabites, when the the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they asked permission to go through their land and pay for whatever they used, but the Moabites said no. And not only did they say no, but they hired a prophet in order to curse them. But God turned the cursing into blessing. And so then that prophet Balaam, then he hired women to go and seduce the men of Israel so that they would go after the women and go after their gods. That's how their relationship started as they were coming up out of Egypt. And so there was a curse placed on the Moabites that they were not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 6. No Moabite. Well, who was this man who sojourned from Israel to Moab? It says in verse 2 that this man's name was Elimelech. 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 El. God. E. My. Melech. King. The man's name is, my God is King. And his wife was named Naomi. Naomi sounds like a word that means pleasant. And so we have this couple, my God is King and pleasant. They're leaving the house of bread because there is no bread and they're going to sojourn in the land of Moab. So what do we have here? We have at the very beginning, with this setting of the scene, we have the narrator placing in our minds some questions. If, if your God is king, then why is there no bread in the house of bread? If your name is, is pleasant, then why are you having to, to flee from your land to go into a foreign land to look for food? Where, where is this God who is King, who gives pleasantness. They had two sons, Mahlon and Kilion. Not sure what those names mean. Many speculations, but it's not as clear as it is with Elimelech and with Naomi. It says they're from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. That's the setting of the scene, the first two verses. And then we have the Dickensian stroke in verse 3. And as I was reading it, you might think that I did what I sometimes do in misreading. 
Sometimes I do that, but what I did is I reordered the translation here to give you a little bit more of a flavor of how the Hebrew sounds. Because the first word in in verse 3, the first word is, He died. And to smooth that out in English, it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. But the narrator was not being so smooth. The narrator was being more abrupt, like Dickens. It says, And he died. My God is king, the husband of pleasant. No explanation of why he died. No explanation of what happened. He just says, And my God is king, died. But all was not lost, because pleasant still had two sons. And that was, that was the life of a widow, to have sons to to provide for her. And that was also the life of the the dead father because the sons could carry on his line and his line, his, his descendants would not be extinguished. And they took Moabite wives. And that was a little out of the usual, but there was no prohibition about marrying Moabites even though they weren't allowed in the assembly of the people of God. They were not excluded like the Canaanites were from from intermarrying with the Israelites. The name of one was Orpah, verse 4. The name of the other was Ruth. And so now there is hope. They live there about 10 years. Now, we don't know exactly how to count these 10 years. 10 years from the time they arrived. 10 years after the the, the boys married. Uh, it could likely be the whole 10 years, but it may have been that they were married for 10 years, and so it was very clear that they were not going to have children. But however that might be, then the narrator once again abruptly, almost cruelly, in verse 5 says, and they died, both Machlon and Kilion, so that the woman was left without her two boys and her husband. Did you notice something in verse 5? What did Pleasant lose? She lost her name. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. And now how does the narrator describe her? The woman. She's a nameless woman without a husband and also without her two sons. But you might think I misread again, but this this uh, noun in verse 5 where it says without her two sons and her husband, that word sons is unusual. It's surprising. And I read it as boys. She had lost her boys and she lost her husband. Now keep that in mind because this jumps out as a, as an unusual word, but it's the, the second of the author's inclusios. It's the second placement of a, of a bookend because what we will find when we get to chapter four, verse 16, that this unusual word shows up again. Now, Things are looking very, very bleak for this family. And in addition to the heartache of losing her husband and losing her two boys, there are two apparently insurmountable problems here. One is three widows with no men to provide for them in a society and an economy in which men were the ones that were necessary for provision, three women without 
somebody to provide. Where would they get lechem? Where would they get bread? Where would they get food? Would they be extinguished? But there's another problem, and that's Elimelech. That's, that's my God is king. Where is he going to get descendants? Not only did he die, but his two sons died. And so it looks like his line has been extinguished, which was, which was a terrible tragedy in Israel that, that anyone's family line should be snuffed out. And so we end these verses, these first verses, with, with two apparently impossible situations. The, the women needed bread and the men needed descendants. So what we have is a little ray of hope when we turn the corner in verse 6. It says, Then she arose. She doesn't have a name still. It's the woman. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them bread. Now this verse has all singular verbs. Yes, she arose with her daughters-in-law, but all the verbs are singular. And they refer to whom? They refer to this unnamed woman who is left without any man to take care of her. She arose, she heard, and she was determined. In verse 7, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. It looks like she had planned to go back by herself from the beginning. This verb here about visiting, the Lord visited His people. When we think about visiting, we think about a brief stay. Oh, I'm just going to visit for a little while. But in the Old Testament, this verb visit was when God intervened in the lives of His people for one of two things. Either to bless or to curse. And there's another verb that's very important here. And this is another of the techniques of of the, the, the narrator where he's mixing two different techniques. He's mixing repetition and he also sets up another inclusio. There are many bookends that he's setting up and this prepares us for chapter 4. The verb to give. It says that the Lord had given them food. This is a verb that appears twice in chapter chapter 1, and it appears four times in chapter 4. Three of the times it refers to the Lord giving, the Lord giving, the Lord giving. And so what's the author doing? He's planting in our minds that even though it looks like things are going very, very badly for this family, it's the Lord who gives, and by implication, the Lord who takes away as well. So this is the first subtle reminder that God is the one who is in control of this story even though it looks like He's out of control. Then we have the dialogue, and that takes up the major part of chapter 1. Along the way, Pleasant hatches her plan to dismiss her daughters-in-law and go on by herself. And this dialogue develops in three stages. And the first stage is when Pleasant begins by urging her daughters-in-law to return by blessing them in the name of the Lord 
uh, with his steadfast love. Look at verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And that was it. She sent them away. But in typical Oriental fashion, uh, perhaps if this had been a story in the United States, the girls would have said, okay, see ya, and walked on. But there had to be a dialogue here. There had to be an objection raised. She had blessed them with the the steadfast love of the Lord. And she has said, may the Lord in His steadfast love, chesed in Hebrew, may the Lord provide for you temporarily in the house of your mother, which is an unusual expression as well. Normally you would think in the house of your father. Had their fathers died as well? Or was he simply emphasizing that they were women who were by themselves? But temporary provision. And may he bless you in his steadfast love with more permanent prosperity in the house of your own husbands. But they raised an objection and they said, No, we will return with you to your people. Do you hear that verb? Return. We will return with you. And then Naomi pulled out her arguments. Pleasant strengthened her argument in the second part. And she she used the the absurdity of them going back with her. And she said, look, I don't have any more sons in my womb. It looked like she was past childbearing. And she said, even if I were able to get pregnant tonight with twins... Would you wait for them? And the absurdity of this is is rolling over them. There's no way that Pleasant could provide a future for them. Their only hope was to go back and take refuge in the house of their own families and then to look for husbands who could provide for them. Now, Orpah, Orpah saw the reasonableness of this This argument, didn't she? And it says that when she heard this, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law after weeping, and she left. Orpah did the reasonable thing, didn't she? The arguments were sound. The arguments were good. And we really can't blame Orpah for doing what she did. That was the expected thing. That was the normal thing. But then we find the surprising thing. Ruth. Ruth clung to Pleasant. And then the third part of the dialogue. Pleasant uses some peer pressure in verse 15. And says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Don't worry, it's okay. She's done it. She did the right thing. Go and do the same thing. And now we have a surprise. Because... Ruth takes charge of the dialogue here. And her response is probably one of the most famous lines of the Old Testament, certainly the most famous of Ruth. And she breaks out in an adamant, obstinate declaration of her commitment to pleasant her commitment to Pleasant's God and her commitment to Pleasant's people. She says, 
Do not talk to me about this. Don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This was not a temporary commitment. She wasn't simply saying, you're older than I am. I'm younger. I'll go with you. I'll take care of you until you die. And then I'm returning to my people. She was burning her bridges. She was saying, I am returning with you. Come what may. And I am casting all of my hope in whatever your future is. Now, this is remarkable. And indeed, she's actually making a commitment for eternity, most likely. This, this expression when she says, she, she does this oath where she, she calls judgment on herself if she doesn't fulfill at the end of 17. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Actually, there's another way to translate that which I think is preferable. Which goes like this. May the Lord do so to me and more also if even death parts me from you. And so she's saying, I am throwing in my all with you, with your God, with your people for all of eternity. This is astounding. This kind of commitment to God is so unusual in any day. She, she, she wasn't hedging her bets in, in any way. She was, she was all in with everything, come what may. And let me ask you this. What had she seen up to this point about the benefits of following the God of her mother-in-law and father-in-law? What had she seen so far about what this God was like. She had lost her father-in-law. She had lost her husband. And they had no one to provide. That's what she had seen. But even so, even so, she said, I am going to follow this God. And so she wasn't in it, obviously, for whatever temporal benefits it might produce. This is a remarkable confession of faith. That she's saying, this God will be my God Come what may. Now, Pleasant had met her match. And she said when Pleasant saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And it may be that she said no more the rest of the journey. We can imagine these two women walking on, Ruth adamant and Pleasant kind of fuming that she had not listened to her. And she's going with her. And then we have the return. Verses 19 and following. The two of them went on until they came to House of Bread. And when they came to House of Bread, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, apparently under their breath to each other, said, Is this Naomi? It looks like those years, those ten years, had not passed in vain on Naomi. They had been hard years, and perhaps she was not recognizable. They had known her. And they were asking each other, is that the Naomi that we used to know? Is this pleasant? And it looks like she heard them whispering and and heard them say her name. Pleasant. Is this pleasant? 
Is this pleasant? And she burst out in verse 20 with a rant, with a complaint against God. She said, do not call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She had some pent-up anger here, didn't she? And she finally let loose when they said, Is this the pleasant that we've all always knew? And she said, don't even think about calling me pleasant. My life is bitter and my life is bitter because the Lord has treated me bitterly. He's testified against me. He has gone out against me. He has brought calamity upon me. Call me bitter because that's what my life is. Now we need to stop and ask ourselves a question. Was she right? Was she right in her evaluation of the situation? And we have to say that she had good theology. We have to say that she understood who God was. We have to say that she recognized that everything that happens is under His control. She understood that God is sovereign That he's the one who controls everything that comes to pass. And so, it's, it's not an option simply to say, oh, well, this happened, but that, that escaped his notice. That, that slipped out from under his care. She understood that everything that happened to her, the death of her husband, the death of her sons, the lack of bread, all of that was under God's control. It was his doing for her. But, She made a mistake, even with her good theology. And it's a mistake that we often make as well. She made the mistake of judging God's posture towards her on the basis of her current circumstances. Yes, she understood that God's in control of all things, but she attributed to God animosity, She made God her enemy because her situation was so very difficult. Now, I've not faced anything as difficult as what this woman faced. And as difficult as what many people are facing this very morning, not far from here. But it's a mistake. It's a mistake to attribute a posture to God on the basis of the little bit that we can see right now. I have sat with many people as a pastor and they have wrestled with how can I affirm that God is good, that God is love, that God is kind, when this has happened to me or has happened to the ones I love? That's a hard question to answer. But there is an answer. It's an answer that is sufficient to help us through now 
until we see one day more clearly all that God was doing. But for now, there is an answer. And the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, you can look at the tragedies in your life or in the lives of others and try to intuit what God is like. Or you can look at what God has done in this world definitively, historically, visibly, and understand what God is like on the basis of that. You can say, I don't have this in my life. Or God took this away from me. Or God has not allowed me to have this or that. And conclude that God is against you. Or you can look at Jesus, God's Son, who came and gave His life for all who will trust in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That's what's going to help us through, folks. A vision of God that that goes beyond our circumstances. And a vision of God that, that takes into account what He has done in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to find His steadfast love, regardless of what is happening in our lives. Now, when we get back to the story we find in verse 22, the narrator sums it up. So Pleasant returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. This is curious. It's the twelfth of twelve appearances of the verb return. The eleventh and the twelfth occur here. It says Naomi returned, and then it calls Ruth what? The Moabite, the foreigner, the outcast, the excluded one, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now, wait a minute. How could she return from the country of Moab? Had she ever been in House of Bread before? Apparently not. What is this returning She returned from the country of Moab. We understand how Naomi returned, don't we? We understand how Pleasant returned. But what is this about about Ruth returning to House of Brad? Well, it looks like the author is pointing out that this is going to be a story about what? About returning. And we have a very strange irony, a very strange situation at the end of the chapter. We have Pleasant, the Israelite, who returned to her native land, but she was very far from God. And then we have Ruth, the Moabite, who was now very far from her native land, but she had returned to God. So maybe that's what this book is going to be about. Returning, not just to a place, but returning to God. And that's the important question for us. Not where we are geographically, but where we are in relationship to God. 
Because here we have a woman who started out close to God and ended up far because of how difficult her life was. And we have another woman who started out far from God and ended up close to God. Because the little bit that she saw of God's steadfast love. That's what's going to draw us as well, as pleasant or as difficult as our lives might be in the moment. That's what we need to see. We need to see a glimpse of God's steadfast love as He has expressed that in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the last detail is about barley. And they came to house of bread at the beginning of barley harvest. Do you see how he used inclusio in this chapter itself? We started in Bethlehem in house of bread, and what was there not? Bread. We end the chapter in house of bread, and what is there soon to be? Bread once again. And so we end this first chapter with hope that Two of the problems, at least one of them might be taken care of. The widows may find bread after all. And it leaves us with the question of whether the other situation, the other apparently impossible situation of descendants for Elimelech and for his sons will be taken care of as well. But... We're going to have to wait to chapter 2 to begin to find out. So let's pray. Our God, we think about what you give and what you take away. We've sung today, you give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we read a story about your giving and taking away in the lives of these women. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, we certainly understand the reaction of Pleasant, whose life had become so bitter. And Lord, it's likely that we have found ourselves in that bitter place where we have looked at our circumstances and had a hard time understanding what you're like and seeing love and kindness and pleasantness in your attitude toward us. I pray, O God, for all of us, as we go through those bitter times in life, that you would enable us to have a vision for your love for us, not so much in our current circumstances, but rather in your sending your Son, who gave himself for us. And I pray, O God, that you would help all of us to be like like Ruth, that we would commit ourselves to you, even though we've seen difficult times, even if we're going through a difficult time now, O God, that you would enable us to return to you, that we might see more and more of your steadfast love. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.